Well, good morning. And uh, I am excited for uh, our brother Jeff to come and uh, begin his internship here. Uh, he used to be a member at Pillar Baptist Church years ago. And what's interesting about our brother Jeff is that he's fairly tall, he's fairly large, and uh, he speaks fluent Korean. And I would often use him and I would take him to the Korean market and I would ask him, I'm Korean, but I don't know how to read Korean, but I'd have him read the labels for me and talk to the Korean workers there. And they would be very confused as they saw this smaller Korean man not saying anything and this bigger white man saying everything in Korean. But please go ahead and welcome him as he comes. Well, it's again a joy to be with you on this Lord's Day. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, and that to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. And we'll begin in verse 13, but before we do so, let's come to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can gather together this morning, but more importantly, we can gather around Holy Scripture. We ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, not the word of a preacher, but rather the words of Christ. Sanctify us in your truth as we give ourselves to your word that is truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, towards the end of his gospel, Luke gives us again special insight into the life of Jesus. This time, not as a growing 12-year-old boy, but as the risen Christ. Now, you'll remember that early on Easter morning, several of the women went to the tomb only to find that the tomb or the stone had been rolled away. And when they entered into the tomb, they found that it was empty. And that set off a chain of events involving dazzling angels and a lot of running for Jesus' disciples. But as the chaos of that early morning discovery had settled in, later on that day was a walk back home to Emmaus by two of Jesus' followers. Now, this is a fairly long narrative beginning in verse 13, and that's understandable because it was a fairly long walk back home to Emmaus, which was seven miles. And if you're one to take notes, I do have an outline for you uh, to help you navigate through the text. And what we'll see here in this passage in verses 13 through 24 is this, the confusion of the two travelers, the confusion of the two travelers. And then in verses 25 through 27, the clarity of God's word, the clarity of God's word. And finally, in verses 28 through 33, the conviction of seeing Christ. Well, the story begins in verse 13 with some confused followers of Jesus. Look with me in your Bibles. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they are talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Well, one of the first questions that we have on this road to Emmaus is the identity of these two travelers. Well, who were they? Well, we know one of them because later down in verse 18, a name is given to us, a man by the name of Cleopas. And we don't know for sure who he is, but... 
It might be that Cleopas is the same as Clopas from John chapter 19, verse 25. John tells us there that a few women standing by the cross of Jesus, one of which was Mary, the wife of Clopas. And we're told that they were family members of Joseph and Mary. So it could be that Cleopas was Clopas and that the other was his wife, Mary. Well, we can't be certain of this, but that's okay because that's not Luke's emphasis. Rather, Luke's emphasis is to show us the spiritual condition of these two close followers of Jesus. Notice they had just witnessed the most painful heartbreak of their lives. They were in great despair, grieving the death of their beloved. And this is how we find them on the road back home to Emmaus, in sorrow, in defeat. But as they walked along that difficult road, notice a third person joined them. Luke tells us that as they were talking, that Jesus drew near and went with them. Now, you would think at this point in the story that the faces of these two would have lit up, surprised and overjoyed to see Jesus, but they didn't know that it was Jesus. Well, how did they not know that the man who had just begun walking with them, how did they not know that it was Jesus? Well, if they knew Jesus well enough to love him and to follow him, how could they not recognize him? Is it because they were so filled with sadness and they looked down and refused to look up? Is it because they couldn't fathom that Jesus could be alive? But those explanations don't really answer the question. How could they not realize it was Jesus? Look with me in verse 16 in the text. It's because their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now let me ask you a question. Who kept their eyes from recognizing Jesus? In grammar, this is what we call a divine passive. And here it was a divine hindrance. God was not allowing them to see Jesus. Mark chapter 16, verse 12, in another account says that Jesus appeared in another form to the two of them as they were walking into the country. And so their vision of Jesus was being divinely blocked. It was being providentially blurred. Well, why? Well, Luke's going to tell us, but he's not going to tell us now. That answer will come. But look with me in verse 17. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? Jesus, he interrupts them and makes his way into the conversation. What are you guys talking about? Well, Jesus knows, doesn't he? He absolutely knows what, he, what they're talking about. So why does he even bother to ask? Well, we know this from Scripture. But it's because the Lord, this is how the Lord draws our hearts out. He asks us questions that he already knows, not so much for himself, but for us. Like in the garden when he called out to Adam, where are you? Now to these two followers, Jesus asked, what are you talking about? Verse 17, and they stood still, looking sad. Notice they were so overwhelmed with sorrow. They were so overcome with grief, they couldn't even respond. But notice they simply stopped and their souls were cast down, their hearts were despondent, and they had nothing to say. But they couldn't continue in their silence, verse 18. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you 
the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Cleopas, he looks to the man, the stranger. How do you not know? Are you the only one who doesn't know? It was obvious to the two that this stranger was coming from Jerusalem as he was on the road with them. And if he was coming from Jerusalem, there was no way for him not to know what had just occurred in the city. Are you the only person who doesn't know? How do you not know? Well, you can just see the irony and the confusion of these two disciples. You see, this stranger who had just joined them was actually the only one who really knew what had happened in Jerusalem. While these two followers accused Jesus of being out of touch than anyone else in all the city, it was just the very opposite. They themselves were the ones who did not know. But Jesus knew. He alone could explain what had transpired during his trials. He alone could testify what it was like to be mocked and tortured. He alone could, had felt the thorny crown upon his brow, the nails driven through his hands and his feet. He alone experienced the most horrible death. He alone could describe the inside of the dark tomb at the first light of the resurrection. Instead of being the only person who did not know, he was the only person who did know but notice Jesus, who is incredibly knowing. Notice how incredibly patient he is. That Jesus, who could have responded back with all of his knowledge, he remained patient. Rather than explaining to these followers all that he knew, when he was accused of being the only visitor in Jerusalem who didn't know the things that had happened, Look at what he says in verse 19. What things? It's almost comical. It's laughable. It's because you see this kind of patience is, is, is unnormal. And what we need to appreciate about Jesus in this story is this, that he's willing to travel down the road of confusion with his disciples. That he's w- willing to listen to all of their doubts. And what you and I need to know this morning is that Jesus on this road to Emmaus is the same Jesus that is in our lives. Which is to say that he's willing to demonstrate the same kind of patience with me and with you. That he's willing to overtake us on life's difficult road and fall in stride with us in our pain and in our confusion and in our despair. He is our high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses as we heard this morning. And so when we come to God with special difficulties, with particular needs, with various forms of bewilderment, Jesus seeks to come alongside of us. And it may be this morning that some of us find ourselves like these two followers, downcast, downtrodden, that rather than rejoicing on this Resurrection Sunday, like the two on the road to Emmaus, we find faith weakening. We find vision blurring. And you see, what these disciples desperately needed was to meet with Jesus. And rather than finding Jesus, notice it was Jesus who found them on the road. It was Jesus who drew near. Look with me in verse 19. And he said to them, What things? 
And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since all these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. Notice that for these two travelers, they were disappointed in their hopes. This is what had crushed them. Look at what they said in verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. But notice their hopes had collapsed. But then there was a ray of hope, wasn't there, when some of the women came and they said, we found the tomb empty. But notice it all ends with another collapse of hope. End of verse 24. But him they did not see. And so they are bewildered in their minds. They're filled with despair, unable to make any sense of what is taking place, which then leads to the second part of our story, the clarity of God's word. Look at verse 25. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, Jesus was not being unkind or unloving here and rebuking these two disciples. His ministry as a high priest wasn't in some kind of jeopardy because he pointed out their slowness of heart. This is a part of Jesus' ministry to us, to tell us simply what we, not just simply what we want to hear, but to tell us what we need to hear. And this is what Jesus does for these two. Look at verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, beloved, what does Jesus do here? What does Jesus do with these two followers who are in such desperate need with their spirits despondent and low? What does Jesus do with these two followers who, do so des who so desperately needed to see Jesus? He brings them the medicine that their souls need most, and that medicine is Holy Scripture. You have to realize here, brothers and sisters, that what Jesus does right here is of colossal significance. Well, why? Notice what these two disciples were despairing of. It was Jesus. They needed to see Jesus. Their souls had collapsed, verse 24, because him they did not see. All they needed to do was just see Jesus. Well, then why were the two disciples hindered by God from seeing Jesus? It wasn't because they were so sorrowful. It wasn't because they had forgotten his face. Again, verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And so why, why didn't Jesus just alleviate their fears? Why didn't Jesus just give assurance to their souls? Why didn't Jesus just give them confidence in their hope? By simply removing the divine hindrance from their eyes, enabling them to see his face. 
Isn't that what they needed? That's all that the disciples needed. These two followers, they simply needed to see with their own eyes the risen Savior. But notice, this is not what Jesus gives to them. Isn't that amazing? This is not the medicine he provides for them. Rather, Jesus directs the two back to Holy Scripture. And that is such an important principle for us to grasp and understand. You see, the implement in which Jesus placed his total confidence in dealing with these two followers was the very holy word of God. This is how he was going to minister to them. It was Charles Spurgeon who said that he who was the author of Scripture now became the expositor of Scripture to them. This was Jesus' ministry. And notice he does it again later in verse 45 in chapter 24 with his disciples. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. There is no principle that you and I need to grasp more than this, that Jesus wants to point us to the centrality, the primacy, the sufficiency of Holy Scripture. When Jesus comes and draws near to these disciples and he sees the anguish of their souls, what he brings to them is the exposition of the word and all the word beginning with Moses and all the prophets he interpreted to them. He expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Hawaii Church, there is no lesson these days that we need to more urgently learn, I believe, in the evangelical church than this lesson right here. The sufficiency of Holy Scripture. This is the answer to people's needs. This is the answer to the world's needs. You see, when we look at the world, the world is amok and it's in chaos. But here's the thing, the church looks the same way. This is the answer to the church's needs. Jesus Christ as revealed in Holy Scripture. For us as Christians, there is no need that is more pressing in our current generation than to give ourselves to the study of Holy Scripture. That we ought to be students of it, as we're called every one of us to be students of the Bible and the reason why is because this is where our spiritual needs will be met and our emotional needs will be met and our intellectual needs will be met. It is sufficient, amen? There is no need that God will not meet out of the riches of His truth of Holy Scripture. And here's the thing. If our Lord Jesus put His confidence here, what we ought to be asking ourselves is, how dare we place our confidence elsewhere? Yet one of the evidences of what is happening in the Christian church today, in the subtlest of ways, is our confidence is being seduced. Our confidence is being pulled away from Scripture to something else. Not necessarily something bad, but something secondary. But that something that is secondary will be bad if it in any way, shape, or form replaces our confidence in the Bible. 
You see, Jesus sets before us a pattern that we as Christians need to follow. The primacy of his word, the centrality of the Bible, the sufficiency of holy scripture. This is where confusion is turned to order. This is where despair is turned to hope. This is where unbelief is turned to faith. This is where the sickness of the soul is healed. Now, if you're a Christian believer, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that the Bible is sufficient for you? You see, today the real issue may not be on the authority or the inerrancy or the inspiration of Scripture, but the real issue for us is the sufficiency of it. And this is the question we ought to ask ourselves. Do I believe the Bible to be sufficient to meet the needs of my own spiritual condition and the condition for others? And for Jesus Christ, there's absolutely no question about the answer to that. Notice for the two travelers, they were transformed because of it. That's what caused their souls to be set on fire. Verse 32, it says that these two disciples said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Notice how these two, who were just moments before brought low, despondent, despairing, discouraged, Notice how they were brought to have a burning heart. It wasn't an experience. It wasn't some new thrill. It wasn't some new way of finding God. It wasn't some creative way of getting near to God. It was the exposition of Holy Scripture. That's what had changed them. Church, let me put it this way. When you come under the ministry of God's Word... Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Do you come with that kind of expectation? Do you recognize that in the purpose of God, this is his divinely ordained instrument by which he blesses and grows, by which he encourages and sanctifies his people? Or is it possible that some of us come to church on Sundays scarcely expect that the living God is going to do anything in our lives because all we're doing is really just looking at the Bible. And I understand that. I understand that because in a lot of churches, that's all that they do. They just look at the Bible. But let me say that when Holy Scripture is opened and read and exposited, lives are changed. Jesus delays their recognition of him because he wants them to go back to Holy Scripture. Jesus felt that what these two individuals needed more than anything else was an exposition in the Word of God of the things concerning himself. And so isn't it heartbreaking then that evangelical churches across the landscape feel the need to do everything and anything but preach the Bible. It breaks my heart. You know, I'm not familiar with other churches on the island. When I come here, I only come to one church, as you may know. But if this were my home, there would be no other church that I'd rather be than this one right here. 
Because here in this pulpit, the pastors of this church preach Holy Scripture. And I put my life on it. Why did Jesus go to Holy Scripture for these two that so desperately needed to see Jesus? And why is it imperative that we do the same? It's because this is how he wanted these two to see him. Not through his face, but through his word. You see that? You see, from Genesis to Revelation, the overarching master theme of the entire Bible is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 5, 39, it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. We know that the Apostle Paul taught the whole counsel of God, yet he said in Colossians 1, 28, Jesus Christ, him we proclaim. Well, how is that so? Is because all of Scripture intersects at the summit, which is Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ is the very pinnacle of the message of the Bible. And so our vision of him and our knowledge of him, our love for him, our faith in him will not grow apart from the place where he makes himself known, brothers and sisters. You see, we don't come to the Bible because it's some kind of duty of a Christian. But it's because this is where we see Christ. And this is exactly what Jesus was doing on the road to Emmaus. Well, we come to the third and final part of the story here. And it was through the exposition of of Holy Scripture that brought the conviction of seeing Christ. Look with me in verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Well, you see, the time had flown by for these two. And soon they found themselves nearing the exit to Emmaus. And I love the insight that Luke gives to us here in that Jesus, he acted like he needed to go further. He said, oh, oh, I need to keep going further. Oh, you want me to stay? Now, with all that these two disciples received from Jesus, there was no way that they were going to let this stranger, this preacher simply go on his way. And so Jesus, he turns off the road and he follows the two into their home. And I think that gives more credibility as to these two being a husband and a wife, Cleopas and Mary. But what's interesting is this here. Notice what happens in the house. There is a reversal of roles in that the guest becomes the host. You see, it was the custom for the host to offer the prayer, break the bread as it was his house. But it's not Cleopas who takes the bread and blesses it, but it's the stranger who has just been invited as a guest into the home. Jesus, he takes the bread, he prays over the meal, he breaks the bread, he distributes it to those at the table. And Luke then tells us that their eyes were open and they recognized him. And what's very interesting here is that immediately upon their recognition of Jesus, Luke tells us, Jesus, he just, he vanishes from their sight. Well, how were these two able to recognize Jesus? Well, we know that it was by divine hindrance that they couldn't see him. So it was by divine permission that they now could. But why? Why in the breaking of bread? 
You see, for these two followers of Christ, what they had done time and time again was break bread and fellowship with Jesus. And it's through that consistent, familiar activity that the divine hindrance was removed and they were able to see Jesus. But notice here, as they immediately recognized him, he immediately disappeared. Which tells us it wasn't the vision of Jesus that they needed. Or else Jesus would have stayed. He would have stayed the night. He would have spent all night with them. He would have continued showing his face to them. Touch my hands. Touch my feet. But how did they need to see Jesus? They needed to see Jesus through his word. And you see, they give to us, Jesus gives to us an example to follow that their conviction of seeing Christ would come in and through Holy Scripture. And following Jesus' departure, notice their hearts didn't burn because they had seen him with their physical eyes. Look at verse 32 again. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scriptures? Christian believer, does your heart burn with conviction? when you open Holy Scripture? Or have you been finding that you have a diminished appetite for the Word? Is this road to Emmaus seldom traveled in your Christian life? And my question for you is this, brothers and sisters, how will you then recognize Him in your life? And you see, apart from Holy Scripture, you won't. He will remain a stranger. Is that how the Lord Jesus feels to you today? Like a stranger. And if you're not growing as a Christian, have you asked yourself why? It may be because you're not eating. And you're not eating because you don't have an appetite. Well, then you might be asking, Pastor Danny, how do you increase your appetite? And I feel myself very familiar in this area with eating. But do you know how you increase your appetite? Not by starving yourself. Contrary to what you might think, that actually decreases your appetite. So how do you increase your appetite? It's by eating. You increase your spiritual appetite by eating holy food, by walking on the road to Emmaus with the bread of life. If you're not a Christian here this morning, we implore you to come to Jesus Christ as he is revealed in Holy Scripture. It's because the Word of God tells us some very important things that have eternal consequences. That there is an origin to this universe. That in the beginning, holy God created the heavens and the earth. And He created men and women like me and you to know Him and to enjoy Him and to worship Him. But sin marred our relationship with God. It separated us from Him. We cheat, lie, murder, steal, and the list goes on. 
Men and women live their lives in defiance against God, thereby incurring judgment and wrath. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world, not to live in defiance against God, but to live in perfect obedience to God. He was qualified to go to the cross where he was lifted up to die. By dying on the cross, he took the full penalty for sin, thus providing full atonement for sin. He died and was buried and three days later rose again from the dead unto new and everlasting life. And he offers the forgiveness of sins for sinners like me and like you. Come and receive him, non-Christian. Repent of your sins and place your trust in Jesus Christ. You see, this is the message of Holy Scripture. And if you are a Christian, have you been coming to Him? Have you been coming to Him through His Word? Maybe that's why you feel Jesus to be a stranger in your life. That's what happens when you don't see someone. May it be that we this morning have a renewed, a renewed faith to come to Jesus through Holy Scripture. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that you would give us a renewed vision of Christ and to see him through his word that he would be thou our vision and be thou our true word. Awaken us from having eyes set on the things that are trivial and may we fix them on the eternal. Give to us an unending, ever-growing appetite for Jesus Christ and that through his word. May we be eating and may we be feasting. And would you cause us to grow? Sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.